Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes Live in Miniseries, featuring Rabbi Alex Israel. This podcast is part of our 2019 Winter Pardes Learning Seminar, Shaping Meaningful Relationships in a Lonely World. If you missed out on learning this past winter, but you would like to join us in the summer of 2020, please email seminar at pardes.org.il. For other digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Good afternoon. I'm uh, very delighted to be uh, together with you. The, um, every year it is a treat to be able to teach you the objective learning seminar, um, and I'm always um, refreshed by the exciting discussions that we have together. As you can see from my title, Ego, Ego Humility, and the Distortion of Religion, the Story of Naaman, we're going to get to the questions about humility and ego, but first we're going to have to read the story of Naaman. Uh, so I'd like to give two introductions just to introduce a little bit about, uh, you've already met me, but I'll give you a third uh, or a fourth piece I uh, also teach Tanakh here, and uh, one of the uh, good fortunes that I've had in recent years is to uh, be lucky enough that some of my shiurim that I wrote on the Book of Kings, uh, I was given the opportunity to publish two books on uh, the first Book of Kings and the second Book of Kings, and um, this uh, part of what we're going to do today really comes from my... Uh, work on Sefer Malachim. As you can see, we're going to be studying a chapter, uh, chapter five from Sefer Malachim, and hopefully, if we absorb the lessons well enough, we will get into the topic of, as I said, ego, humility, and the distortion of religion. But even before I became, uh, you were talking about Narhayiti Gamzakanti. Before I Gamzakanti, Narhayiti, and. Uh, my real love of, uh, I, I want to say something, maybe it sounds a little cutesy, but it's really, really true. Um, there is a concept in, in, in the Talmud, in Judaism, of girsa di yankuta. That what you learn when you are a, a yankuta, when you're a child, literally yankuta from your neck to nurse, what you learn when you're a child, you don't forget. And you develop special sentimental connections to things that you experienced when you were a child. Why I have been telling you this? Because in England, there is a uh, children's books. A bit like in America, I think they have those, those books with the golden spines on them. On the spine? Golden, books. golden books. So in England, we had what, what called ladybird books, right? The ladybird books could have been, uh, you know, the gingerbread man and could have been, you know, uh, the three pigs or whatever. But I, I had a lot of those books and, you know, I had Jack and the Beanstalk and I had the gingerbread man. I had all of those. But I also had one which was by, somehow appeared by, next to my bed at home uh, called Naaman and the Little Maid. And I used to like reading this. I used to read it frequently because it was about us. It was about a prophet of Israel and uh, the God of Israel. And I thought this was like a really great story, right? I had no clue, you know, it came from Tanakh, right? <laughs> it is true that I used to get up very early on Sunday mornings and turn on the TV, and they always had Bible stories, right? I used to like the Bible stories, and then they started with the Jesus stories, and I asked my parents about that, what those ones, and they were like, those aren't our Bible stories, right? <laughs> but this story of Naaman and the little maid has remained in my uh, soft spot in my heart uh, from when I was a little boy till when I actually wrote a scholarly commentary on the Book of Kings. And this should maybe be a 
a uh, cautionary tale for all of us about what stories we read to our children or our grandchildren, what books we buy, because sometimes those books which we, uh, you know, give to the younger generation can really develop a very, very uh, deep emotional spot in their heart. And if those books, you know, enhance our Jewish identity and our Jewish uh, texts, then who knows what the effect could be. They could end up as a Tanakh teacher or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> yes, I know, let's not get too radical here. So uh, with that introduction, we're going to dive into this story. I'm going to give it to you. We're after lunch, so I need to make you a little bit active. So we're going to go into Chabrota. I just want to give you a little bit of the background. Um, the Book of Kings uh, deals with a very long uh, 300 years of history from King Solomon to the destruction of the temple. If you want, from the Binyan to the Chorban, from the building of the temple to its destruction. Um, and in the middle of the Book of Kings, they take a break from going through an itinerary of all the different kings, and they go into the stories of two prophets. Um, maybe we'll call the first one, his name is Eliyahu, Elijah. Maybe we'll call him the prophet of fire. Elijah is a very fiery character who is very oppositional, confrontational, and is determined to teach the kings that they cannot, cannot appeal to the Baal, and they have to be loyal to the God of Israel. But his successor, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, is a very, very different type of personality. And he doesn't get engaged, he doesn't get involved in polemics and in uh, direct confrontations with kings. He is frequently, or more often than not, a miracle maker. He, as we hear with Elisha, whether it's uh, granting an uh, infertile woman a son, then he dies, then he revives him. You're probably familiar with these stories. Uh, whether it, maybe he is busy healing a spring which is producing salty or, or, or uh, water which is causing death and he heals the spring. He, he's, there isn't enough food, so somehow he magnifies. He's always doing miracles. It's almost as if you've got a problem, miracle. Funny because in the Bible in general, miracles aren't dispensed in a sort of nonchalant way. Usually, miracles are for big moments. And uh, otherwise, you know, the world goes on how it normally is, not for Elisha. Elisha, his go to method is going to be first of all, he helps people a lot, but um, he's always using miraculous means. And we're going to encounter here um, the fact that. This uh, is not going to only be practiced as he has done in chapter 2, 3, 4 of 2 Kings for Jews, but also for non-Jews, for a captain, or a, I should really call him the chief of staff of the Aramean army. Luckily, this was sitting here in the corner of the room, so I will use this. Here, of course, we have the land of Israel, and over here you have Aram, Aram with Damascus as the capital. Hasn't changed much, right? Today's Syria, still Damascus is the capital. I'm not sure what's left of it, but we won't get into that now. And um, at, at this time, uh, we are at war with Aram. Aram are our sworn enemies. In fact, the Aramean Ben-Hadad actually killed the previous king, King Ahab, in war. And remarkably, this is going, we're even going to read in the beginning of the story that Aram uh, are busy attacking Israel, and yet Elisha is going to heal their chief of staff. Why? Well, we'll have to look at the story. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, you see here, if you've got, uh, it's on page 61 of your uh, booklet, 
um, you will see simply a chapter uh, of chapter 5 of 2 Kings. And what you will see after that is a few questions here. Um, trying to examine the character of Naaman, the character of Elisha, and the character of Gehazi. Okay? Uh, what I would recommend is for you to study in some sort of uh, small groups, pairs, or threesomes. And I would uh, suggest that what you do is read a few lines and then actually take a break. Don't just read through the whole story. Uh, take a break and say to whoever you're studying with, uh, what did I just read? Right? And you'll see they'll repeat it back to you. And then suddenly the questions will start flowing. Right? Once you see somebody summarize, say, well, I didn't quite hear it that way. Or ask yourself about why the different people uh, acted in the ways that they did. Uh, I've given you my questions on the bottom of the, the second, uh, on page 62 and the top of page 63. Don't worry about the bit from where it says leprosy onwards. Um, that, won't, uh, that won't feature. We'll do that later together. Okay? Oh, one word, uh, uh, one last word of introduction. You're going to see about a, um, an illness called leprosy. Okay? And... Um, some of you might have even visited uh, here in uh, Rakhavia, the Hansen House, right? I think it's called Hansen's disease, right? Do you have any physicians in the room? Um, that's what we call leprosy, right? Hansen's house used to be a leper's colony you know, many years ago. Then it's that derelict, and now it's become this sort of arts and you know, cool uh, tech hub here in Jerusalem. Um, but it's the old leper's house, interestingly. Um, the Tanakh... The Bible does not look at leprosy as being a medical ailment. The Bible very much looks at le leprosy as being spiritual. It is the priest who is meant to diagnose it. And frequently, certainly in the rabbinic tradition, leprosy comes not because you have been exposed to some sort of uh, bacteria or, or whatever it might be, but it's rather because you've sinned in some way, right? And therefore, God's method of like, um, you know, giving you some sort of punishment because you have uh, sinned might be by striking you with leprosy. In a few minutes, we will talk about why this. I will say that in the Bible, leprosy can affect your skin, and most often your skin, but also your clothing and even the walls of your house. Right? To give you the most maybe extreme example of this, uh, you probably all remember one of Moses' early stories where Moses was trying to prove himself, right? Remember, God gave him three signs. One sign was that he'd take the, the stick and it would become a snake. Remember that one? And he said, put your hand inside your sort of his shirt and it'll come out and be leprous. Put it back in, it won't be, right? Hey, cool. And then the last one is you'll pour blood and water and it'll turn to blood, right? And when the... Um, the, the Bible says if you don't listen to the first sign you will listen to the last sign but there are not the first and the last there are three and they say well the middle one the leprosy wasn't a sign even Moses was being punished why was he being punished because he said what happens if the Jewish people don't listen to me how dare you doubt the fact that Jews will listen to their leaders? <laughs> <laughs> if you show such lack 
lack of faith in the Jewish people. I wonder why he had that thought. But anyway, if you have such a lack of faith, we're going to give you some sort of uh, punishment. What will happen? Your hand will become leprous. I'm just giving this an example of that leprosy is seen as sort of a spiritual message, much more than a medical disease. And I think that's also going to be part of this whole story. Um, with all of those introductions, I will leave you to learn uh, for about the next 20, 25 minutes. Okay? And... Um, what I would like to do together with you is to do a type of a literary analysis. Um, and I'm going to use the work of a um, modern Bible professor. His name is Professor Yair Zakovich, a uh, very famous professor emeritus from the uh, Hebrew University. He's written pretty much on every single book of the Bible. He is not a um, uh, religiously observant Jew, but he sometimes you, when you read his uh, readings of the Bible, and you read with the power with which he draws out the spiritual messages, you really actually do wonder how somebody who reads the Bible with such power would not be <laughs> a, a, a you know, religiously observant uh, Jew. Uh, he is uh, you know, a really, really powerful uh, literary uh, and, you know, reader of the Bible. And I want to start off with his um, analysis of what we would call in literary works the exposition. When you introduce a character, there's always a line which introduces the character. And it's very interesting what the line tells us. Sometimes when you have no introduction, you also wonder what that means, right? Um, I'll just give an example, right? We all know that before Moses is chosen, we have stories of him sort of like saving people, right? So we get in the sense before we even meet Moses as the leader of the Jews that he is a person who has a penchant for social justice. He is incorrigible when it comes to, you know, going into the line of fire. Even though it'll cost him dearly, we get a sense of who Moses the man is. So if we get a line here introducing Naaman, right, which is quite a long, rambling line, what, what does it tell us about him? Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, Sartsavam and Aram, Haya Ishkadol Lifneatunav. He was a great man before his master, Unasupanim, right? Yisah Hashem Panavilacha, let God lift his face. So he was of great influence. That's what most people how does it translate it here? High in favor, right? Um, by the way, this is, I took this as the JPS translation, the new JPS translation. I don't always love it. It doesn't always, I should have, uh, when I made this sheet, they didn't yet have the Robert Alter translation, which is far superior. Uh, I'll just give you one example. It says, and high in his favor. Well, it doesn't say unasupanav in the Hebrew. It just says unasupanim. I don't know in whose favor he is high, right? But he... May God lift his face up. It means he's a face lifter, right? He's a people, he walks by and people take notice, right? So he is high in, he is a high repute. That's what I would say. He is a social mover and shaker, right? Or maybe a government mover and shaker. Because um, God has given him victory for Aram. And the man was a mighty warrior a leper. Um, so we had a lot of accolades, right? A lot of accolades. And then we get that thing at the end. Now, he actually says it's not only at the end. And he notes, I've drawn it out here, that actually you could take these, this whole first verse and organize it into almost four phrases. Okay? One, two, three, four. Where each one has two clauses. Yeah. Okay? Two clauses, okay? And almost the first clause 
will give some sort of accolade. And the second clause is going to qualify or limit that accolade. So, he is a military officer, right? Or he's a Tsar Tzavah. He's actually a military Tsar. But is it his army? <laughs> it's the army of the king of Aram. So he's answerable to somebody else. Okay? He is a great man. Ishkadol. Okay? Lifnei Adonai. Right? Before his master. So he is a great man. If you'd stop there, you'd say. But Lifnei Adonai. Right? Now, by the way, I'm going to come back to these, these um, especially this one, I want to come back to this notion of Ish, Gadol, Lifnei, and Adon, because we're going to see them come up a lot. The word Lifnei, indicating some sense of subservience, or being answerable to, or being inferior to, or being lower in the hierarchy. And the notion of Adon, right? The feminine of Adon would be Givira. Right, Gavira. Um, and we'll talk about that. Or on a supanim, a man of great influence or great social standing. Now, is this because of him? Kibonatan Hashem Chual Aram. It's because of his victories of Aram. But who's given him the opportunity to have that victory? God. Okay. God has given him the victory. And he's a great warrior. A leper. So, in other words, you could almost put the word. But, in between each of these clauses, he's a great, but it's the king of Aram. He's a great man, but he's answerable to his, on a supanim, he's a great influence, but it's because God given him this power, and he's a warrior, but he's a leper. Yes? Just a quick question. Why would the God of Israel give a victory to one of the enemies of Israel? I'd probably say that in the story in, over here, we've just seen, witnessed the fall of uh, the great king Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel, the first king to take the religion of the northern kingdom and turn it towards the Baal, away from Hashem, away from God. And uh, God promises that he will punish the northern kingdom. And it seems like the way that God, the implement, the, the, the implement that God used in order to punish them is through the uh, battery of Aram, of Syria, who are going to not only kill uh, Ahab in war, but they're going to subject the kingdom to some crushing defeats. And this is just the beginning that we're witnessing. Here we're going to witness in the next line, the Arameans were engaging in raiding parties, Gududim. They were engaging in border incursions, right? It's then going to increase to full-scale military assaults until they besiege Samaria. It's not going to be looking very pretty in the, in the forthcoming chapters. So, yes? Um, is this or how is this playing on the format of biblical poetry with the A part and the B part? Very of good. Verse? You're right. There is this notion in biblical poetry, which we see particularly in the uh, sort of in Tehillim, right? In the Sifrei Emet, as they call them, uh, Eov, Mishle, Tehillim, and others, where we see doublets, right? So parallelism. Professor James Cook has written a whole book about these parallelisms. And frequently you'll, you'll uh, see, um, you know, typical. Um, patterns, uh, I don't know. Tov lahodot l'Hashem, it is good to praise God. Or lezamer l'shimcha elyon, lahigib abokeh chazdecha ve'emunatcha baleilot. Praise Him during the morning, praise Him during the night. Sometimes there are examples where it's even, it's even uh, more reflective of that. So there might be a sort of poetic lilt here, I don't know. But this isn't poetry. This is prose. 
So you are correct that that is a, a feature of poetry. I don't know if I necessarily say here, in fact, we're arguing here, that the parallelism is almost a, a contrast rather than a reflection. Um, leper. The, um, weren't lepers isolated? Exactly. So can you imagine what this did to this man of great social standing? He couldn't go to the cocktail parties. So His he got leprosy after he won the war. Is it that seems that way. I right? It comes down with leprosy. I don't know how long he's been afflicted with this. It's clearly irking him. Right? It's clearly a problem. And uh, he wants to get rid of it. Right? Okay. So let's keep going. Uh, sorry, I'm going to push. Now, what I, I guess what I really want to say at the start is, it, by the way, um, Zakovich wrote on this chapter... A, 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 a literary analysis of this chapter, a 150-page book. <laughs> and he actually is, it's, it's just on this chapter. It's, it's a stunning book. And he actually called it Gavoha Gavoha, higher and higher. Okay? And what he essentially wants to set up, even in his analysis of the opening line, is that this is a chapter which deals a lot with hierarchies, social hierarchies. Right? We all have a sense of where we are. You know, you don't need to necessarily have grown up in Britain and talk about upper class, middle class, and lower class although maybe it helps. But um, the, the, um, the, the notion that we all have a sense of people who are above us, lower than us, whether it's at work, whether it's you know, in certain uh, other, other situations, and there are people who look up to us, there are people who look down at us, and, and, and what exactly does that do? Um, and here, we're going to, I'm just going to, we're going to look at the next couple of... Uh, we see here, Aram Yatsuk Dudim, the Arameans go out in raiding bands, and they uh, capture from Israel a na'araktana vatilifne eishet na'aman. Now, I just want to pay attention to even this. Okay? Uh, first of all, um, what, how's this girl described? you ever hear her name? No. 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 What is she? Yeah. A na'araktana. What's the opposite of na'araktana? Ishagadola. Or or <laughs> <laughs> or you've got this Ishkadol. In other words, you couldn't have a more difference between the Ishkadol. And notice, by the way, again, the, ha the hierarchical language. It says that this, if I want to do it like this way, this Na'arak Tana, this little girl, right, is Lifne. She is before or subservient to Eshet, the wife of Na'aman, right? <laughs> you know, right. even in that verse. Right? She also doesn't have a name, right? She also doesn't have a name. So you're using again this word lifne. They're using the notion of big and small, right? The notion of ish versus na'ar or na'ara. By the way, where else does this come in? Think, think, think. You read it? Na'ara. Try na'ar then. Oh, oh, no, sir. No. No, in our story. That's true, but <coughs> when he goes in the water, what happens to him? His skin turns like the skin of a Na'ar Katan. Okay, so the Ishkadol has to become a Na'ar Katan in order to be healed. Okay, we need to hear. You've got to hear these words coming through the text, right? Yeah. So we're hearing this. So we're hearing, we're seeing this notion of the hierarchy. We've got the, the young maid or the young na'ara who is lifne, that critical word lifne, we're going to see it a lot, standing before, means answerable to, subservient to, lowering to the wife of na'aman. And we're going to see that even na'aman is going to have an adon. Yes? Yeah, I was wondering when I was reading this, 
whether there's any possibility that he got the leprosy because he was involved in the raiding. That's how the girl ended up in his house. Oh, well, he's definitely in charge of the army, so he can take pickings from, you know, he obviously needed, a, a, you know, uh, somebody to act as his maid at home, so he just took her from the spoils of war, right? But it seems like he has the Matorah before he's engaging in this raiding, so we don't get the indication it's to do with the military conflict that this uh, malady comes about, yeah. If they thought of uh, leprosy as being more of a punishment than a medical issue, then what did he do to get the leprosy? Okay, so let's, let's get that. That's a good question, right? Remember, I'm saying in our Bible we see it that way. Right? In our, in, in our Bible, we see it that way. Um, I, I don't know what other cultures saw it. You Is know. it because he's from another culture? That, that no. I, I'm, I'm going to relate. I think it relates to the sin of arrogance, but we'll, 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 we'll get to that. And notice, by the way, what next happens. Again, I want you to pay attention to the Hebrew. We're going we're gonna to go a bit faster in a minute, but notice verse 3. And the little girl, Batomer el Gavirta, again, that's, that's hierarchical language. She says to her mistress, Right? I wish my master, I wish master, in other words, right, the Naaman would come before, right? Lifnei, before the prophet in Shomron, then he will cure him. Now, it's really fascinating here. Does this little girl, you know, if we take our map, if the Aram is attacking here, if Aram is over here, here you've got Dam, this is all Jewish territory. Right? But what I'm saying, if they're going in, they're, they're attacking, they're attacking his Samaria. Okay? Where is Samaria? Right? Where did it go? It's not on there. Okay? Okay, let's just say that Samaria is somewhere over here. Okay? Okay? Samaria is somewhere over here. Okay, where my finger is. Okay? If Samaria is somewhere over here, okay, I assume they're attacking here, 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 here. They're not attacking Samaria, which is the capital. Has this little girl ever... Does she, how does she know about this prophet? She's heard. She doesn't even necessarily know his name, right? She doesn't know his name, right? She doesn't even name him, right? She just knows there's a prophet in Shomron, and he can do amazing things. I bet you if you go to Shomron, you'll, be, you'll, you'll, you'll meet the prophet there, the prophet, right? That's all she's heard about. It's really interesting. And she tells her it's just there's a prophet in Shoran, he can cure you. And clearly this is somebody Naaman's never heard of. And of course, by the way, how does he, before he goes, who does he need to get permission from? The king. The king. So here's fascinating. The, the suggestion, the cure is going to come from the person lowest on the totem pole. She has to tell her mistress and says, why don't you tell my master? And they skip it. We don't actually even see the wife talking to her husband. But in the very next scene, it says, verse 4, and he went and told his master, right? Nama went and told his lord, right, Adonav, this and this I heard from the Naram Eretz Israel, and he says, fine, I will send you with a book, I'll send you with a, with a letter to the king of Israel, right, and, you know, then you will get permission to approach the uh, prophet in Shomron. Right. Well, every time they say Sefer, it's like Michtav, it's yes. the same thing. Yes, Sefer, Sefer is like, uh, in, in our days, a Sefer, a book is bound, but in those times, a Sefer was a scroll, and the letter was the same thing. And, uh, and all of that. Okay, so what I've, what I've tried to do with you is, right, at this stage, uh, establish a hierarchy. Now, I want to show a little bit about the hierarchy even in the next segment of the story, because, of course, what happens next? He sends him with all this, a lot of money and changes of clothing to the king, and when the king hears that, and he sends him a letter saying, verse 6, right, when this letter comes to you, I've sent my head of my army, and you're going to cure him from his leprosy, 
And the king of Israel tears his clothes and says, who am I? Am I God to give life and death? And how am I going to cure this guy? Um, this must be some sort of pretext. And then the Elisha, well, what's going on in that whole scene? What does that scene give us a little bit? Right? Vulnerability, 100%. What you sense is that the king of Israel is intimidated right, by the Arameans, and he's really scared of them. Right? Now, what does he think is going on here? A trick. A trick. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, he's really going to come and kill them. Or something like that. Well, he think, probably thinks the king of Aram has got a sort of like, a sort of like bizarre sense of humor. Right? Whereas if you hear, I come along and I say, you know, well, I'm sending my chief of staff and you're going to call him in leprosy, he might as well be declaring war, right? I can't call him a leprosy, so I guess we're at war. Otherwise, why would you send your chief of staff, right? You know, in other words, you're giving me an offer, what do you call it, an offer you can't refuse, right? That sort of thing. But I can't, I can't do it, right? So you've just got a sort of so lose, lose. strange sense of humor, and I guess we're at war, so he tears his clothes. Yes? The Navi got lost in here. The Naharad tells um, her mistress that the Navi could cure him, and suddenly one king's writing to another king. Yeah, what's all that about? Well, she told him about the, the Naharad. The Naharad told the king about the prophet. The prophet, yes. And so why, is king write, why doesn't the king write to the prophet? Right, because yeah. that's down in the hierarchy. Right? That's yes. down in the hierarchy. And here's something really remarkable. Here's, right, here's something very interesting. First of all, I will say one thing. It's very interesting. His letter, and all the commentaries... If you look at the, the letter in verse 6, it says, When the king of Israel... Let, oh, no, sorry. He brought the letter to the king of Israel and it read, Now when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent my courtier now among you. Is that the whole letter? Did the king of Aram not write, Dear king of Israel, honorable and mighty, you know, blessed are your name, you are above all the heavens, and, you know, or not. <laughs> so it's fascinating that later on in the book of Kings, we find an example where a senior writes to a subordinate and he begins his letter in exactly the same name. In other words, as far as the king of Aram is concerned, he controls this king. He's got his finger on him. You'll do exactly what I tell you to do. But here's the fascinating thing. Why does the king of Aram not write to the prophet himself? Why does he write to the king of Israel? So I'd like to say something about the world of prophecy. Um, in the world of prophecy, in ancient world, and we find it even in Israel, prophets work for kings. They work for royal houses, Right? Uh, even, you know, I'll give you maybe an area where you're more familiar. Um, the stories of Moses, right? Of course, who does Pharaoh walk around with? The Khartoumei Mitzrayim, the magicians of Egypt, the wizards of Egypt. Why? Because you, you had on your payroll all sorts of religious people. Let me say that religious officials were also the scientists, the psychologists, the political strategists. First of all, they were usually, take Egypt, we know, they were the people who had the hieroglyphics. They were the people who could actually read and write. Okay? They were the learned class. But what you did was you put them on your payroll. And we know that earlier on, Jezebel had 450 prophets, and they're called Ochlei Shulchan Izebel. They ate uh, on, the, on, the, on the royal payroll. Right? I'll give you one amazing scene. You should open the book of Amos. Amos goes to the, the, the temple, and he prophesies the king is going to die. And the high priest walks up to him and says, Amos, this is a Mikdash Melech. This is a temple under royal uh, auspices. You can't prophesy against the king here. <laughs> right? Amos answers him back and he says, I quote, Lo Nabi Anochi, lo Ben Nabi. I am not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. 
Because I am a herdsman and I work with sycamore trees and God told me to come and tell you what he said. And I said, what do you mean I'm not a prophet and I'm not a son of a prophet? Because there were court prophets. I'm not one of those prophets who gets paid a salary and says whatever the king wants you to say. I work for me. Now here, by the way, here we're going to have the best disconnect in the whole story. <laughs> the king of Aram is sure that how do you get to the prophet? Via the king. The king. The king. The, why doesn't the king pick up the bat phone and say, Elisha, I need some help. I can't solve prophecy. That's what Elisha said though. Because the king of Israel never imagines he can say anything to the prophet. Because in the world of Israel, the prophet is the king's not. He's not at the beck of call of the prophet. The prophet is always the greatest critic of the king. He is the conscience. In other words, in Israel, so to speak, the king doesn't think he can say anything to the prophet. He's like keeping out of the prophet's way. Right? You know, he's, or rather, he's got his paid prophets who are his yes men, right? But the other real prophets of God, you know, like you want to steer clear of them if you're involved in any shady business because they'll pick you up on it, right? David and Bathsheba, right? All those stories. So here we've got a situation where the king of Aram assumes you want to get to the prophet, call the king. The king says, what should I do? Somebody said, kill the prophet. He's not answerable to me. He's, 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 he's an independent operator, right? He's his own man, right? So this is just remarkable, okay? And I, I think this goes to the heart of the mindset of the whole story. I put, if you look on the third page, uh, a quote from Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch. I think this goes very much into the mindset of what we're going to see in a minute. Um, source number one on the third page. Uh, you see it there? Mm -hmm. He says, Judaism and pagans go in diametrically opposed directions. The pagan brings his offering, he's talking about sacrifices, in an attempt to make the gods subservient to his wishes. The Jew, in contrast with his offering, wishes to place himself in the service of God by his offering, he wishes to make himself subservient to the wishes of the gods. We're going to see, you know, let's just read a couple more and more lines, and then we'll see this tease itself out. Okay? Yes? I, I find, who was the king of Israel at this time? That's a great question. We don't know. Okay. Because <laughs> neither king is mentioned. He's either the king of Aram or right. the king of Israel. The king at the time in Israel is King Yehoram, the son of Ahab. Okay? One of Ahab's sons, Ahaziahu, had a nasty domestic accident and died. And the second one is Yehoram. Um, but in all these chapters, the king is unnamed, which is unusual. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Well, it's not a class on the book of kings, so I'll, I'll hold off. But, uh, okay. Let's take a look at the next... The next. So the, that's why the king of Israel is, is sort of dumbfounded. He doesn't know where to go. And, of course, Elisha says, send him to me. Right? So now what happens? Let's examine this scene. Right? I'm going to read from verse 9. So Naaman with his horses and chariots halted at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a message to him, say, go bathe seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman was angered and walked away in the Hebrew. Okay, it tells us by Ktsof Naaman, from the word Ketsef. Ketsef in modern Hebrew is foam. He is foaming at the mouth, right? Okay, by Ktsof, right? Um, he's foaming at the mouth. And he says, I thought... To me, he would surely come out, the Karab Hashem Hashem Elohav, and he'd call out in the name of God and wave his hands over the, 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 the infected area and cure the leprosy. And then he says, Are not Amanar and Parpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? I could bathe in them and be clean. 
Weil jelech begein ma. He stalked off in a rage. Okay, notice it starts off with, with anger, foaming at the mouth, and it ends off with anger. Okay, what's going on? What, why did he get so angry? What was his expectations, and what happened? He just wanted to make, him, the prophet to come and go, Abracadabra, you're all better. Right. <coughs> now why? Kavod. He's important, right? Yeah, he's, a, he's the important guy. The prophets, and I said, the prophets work for me. Yeah. Right? I should, what, should, what does he expect he's going to have to do? Nothing, right? There's a profit for hire. I pay my money. I brought with me a thousand pieces of gold, changes of clothing, right? Clothing is very expensive then, clearly. Uh, you, know, you see the ratio between the gold and the clothing, right? There's fewer clothing than gold. Uh, and uh, clothing clearly very expensive. And um, I expect I have to do nothing. He's the holy man. He'll do everything, right? And I should just... He doesn't even get out of his limousine. You actually see the whole. You actually see the whole motorcade, right? The whole motorcade drive up to the door. And by the way, Alicia doesn't even come out the house. He sends out a messenger. You're talking about. We're talking about delegates here. Who's your delegate? He sends a subordinate to him. So why is he so angry? His pride is hurt. It's, it's outraged. Right. What do you mean by that? Um, he says, over the part that's affected. Right. And what ends up happening is his entire Oh, that's interesting. Healed. That's interesting. Yeah. But I think it's, it's not just that he expects that he doesn't have to do anything and that Alicia can't. Because later the servants say to him, if it was a complicated thing, you would have done it. In other words, the simplicity of the act itself is below his dignity. Right. At least yeah. make it hard for me. Complicated <laughs> yeah. something that nobody else could do. Right. It can't be that. Make it something a little. Right, make it impressive. In other words, religion has to be impressive. Now, by the way, here again, I think we come down to what that, that thing that we read by Hirsch, right? In the pagan mindset, you expect that you'll do whatever act and God will work for you. Judaism says, right, more often than not, right, place yourself before God, right? You have to serve God, right? God doesn't work for you, you serve God. And uh, Judaism has set the demands that we have to do. God, God will respond when we act in a certain way. And this is going you know, all, all the way through the, the story. Now, I, I gain the sense of his, his anger as being a, you know, really it's beneath his dignity. Right? Mm. And I hear, here again, who comes up with the, who calms him down? Who comes up with the solution? The servants. The servants. All the answers come from the bottom of the pack, right? Mm. By the way, maybe they understand. They've eaten a little bit of humble pie. They were once maybe free people, and now they are. You know, who knows? And they maybe can even see. You know, well, there's some benefit. They look up at those aristocrats. They're not so impressed with them, possibly, right? And they say, you know, yeah, it's, he asks for such a big thing. It's so bad. You can learn something from having to go to a river. By the way, notice they're up in the hills in Samaria. He has to actually vayere. He literally has to go down to the Jordan and bathe in the Jordan, right? Really immerse himself in it. But it's fascinating that the, the solution comes from them saying, uh, by the way, they call him Avi, my father. Davar Gadol? Hey, did he ask you a big thing? There's that Gadol word again, right? He asked you a big wing thing? No. Right? Go down and try it. Right? It doesn't make any sense to you. Let yourself move into the absurd. Let yourself do the thing which you didn't expect. You're right. You thought you sit there passive, 
and he'd do it to you. He's actually asking you to do something. And he has to really come off his pedestal. Now, I, I think there's something really at the core of the, the, the leprosy thing, which is, which is interesting here, because as I said in the Bible, leprosy can hit either your skin, your clothing, or your house. Um, and when you think about it, I think it's interesting that it's sort of like, you know, the things which are my membranes, which protect me, right? Which are my, and we all know membranes take in and give out, right? Are all the, are these things, right? In other words, they are my, between me, the inside of me, and the and outer space, right? Well, I have my skin, my clothing, and my house, and then it's all open from there on, the, the atmosphere. You know, that's it. Which is fascinating. Now, all of these things are also ways in which we create an impression. Right? They're our social um, cocoons, our social layers. You know, by uh, our houses, we create an impression. Am I wealthy? Am I? Are they beautiful? Am I fashionable? Am I cool? Am I? Same thing with my clothing, for sure. And I'd even say today with your skin, right? It's always been the case. Are you sun? In today, it's you suntanned. In the ancient world, if you were more higher class, you were more pale because it meant you weren't working outside, right? Uh, nowadays, with body piercings and body art and and what have you, right? Um, and, uh, and, and there's no doubt that Judaism also uses that, whether it's with Brit Mila or whatever it is. What, the way you mark your skin, right, is something significant. So you make, these are ways where we make an impression on the outside world. Now, classically, we always say, where, why, do you get, uh, why do you get Sarat? Why do you get leprosy? They always talk about Lashon Hara, right? Lashon Hara that you gossiped or you sort of like maligned somebody. So what would be the connection between that and sort of like, the, your skin getting messed up or your clothes or your walls of your house. Is it people staying away from you or something so like that? So first of all, it is interesting that people would stay away from you. You couldn't gossip. Yeah, so, so if people gossip. stay away from you, you couldn't gossip. But I'd say more than that. You're an outcast. Your stature went down. Your stature goes down. So mm -hmm. you're relating about, I, I want to say maybe something a little, a little more, uh, for me, more internal. But I, first of all, I will say, when I gossip about somebody, to a certain degree, I'm judging somebody. I'm stepping beyond my reach. I'm assuming that I know everything about you, and I'm saying something about you. I don't know, maybe you had a hard day that day. Maybe you're going through difficult times, and you just haven't, I don't know about it. So I'm, I'm judging you because you acted a certain way, and I'm talking about you, and I really, what the heck do I know? What do I know about that? But I'd say that to a certain degree, by the way, the rabbis say something more than that. Look at source number uh, two. Sarat comes from 11 things. Cursing the Lord, illicit sexual relationship, bloodshed, attributing to one's fellow traits that he, one's fellow, sorry, traits that he does not have, being arrogant, entering an area that's not one's own, lying, stealing, swearing falsely. Um, it's interesting that, and, and by the way, when they talk about arrogance, they talk about Naaman. Mm -hmm. When I think about either gossip or arrogance or even entering into an area that's one's own, lying, stealing, it's not respecting boundaries. Mm -hmm. It's not respecting boundaries. And I'd say more than that. If I am corrupting the social boundaries that we have, I'm standing there gossiping about you, then what happens to me is my social boundaries start becoming decayed. That's what I think the Bible's telling us and the rabbis tell us when these happen. My social boundaries start decaying when I am corrupting those social boundaries. There's a sense of what goes around comes around. Yes? 
I sort of see it like you're seeing someone else on a skin deep level, and that's why you get a skin Ooh. disease. Okay, that's interesting. You're seeing them on a skin deep level and you get a skin disease or maybe you're going under somebody's skin and therefore your skin starts becoming a little more porous, right? Or you're, you know, the walls, even one of the lovely midrashim, I mean, not so lovely, but they say, why, why, why would the walls of your house become decayed, right? And they say, well, what happens when your walls become decayed is you actually have to sort of evacuate the house and take everything out. And they say it works like this. Let's say your neighbor came along and said, do you have a spare, uh, I don't know, it gives an example of a spade, right? Yes, and he says, sorry, we don't have a spade. And then they come around the next time and they want to borrow, I don't know, whatever it is. And he says, sorry, we don't have that, right? They said, well, God will bring you leprosy on your house and eventually everything will be out on the front lawn, right? And I said, hmm, he didn't have a spade, did he? Right? Well, actually, he did, right? And have you ever moved house and seen everything on the front lawn? I remember when we, when we, it was the first year of our marriage and we moved and everything was on our fronts. You know, waiting for the pickup van, and all the neighbors were walking past, like looking. And my wife was like, uh, I remember my wife, after we packed everything up, saying to me, Alex, we have to throw stuff away. We've got way too much stuff. Like, it's very exposing, right? And even that word, being exposed, right? Being exposed is taking down those walls by which we, even if we've done nothing wrong, right? We have these things which give us our privacy and give us our dignity, right? And to a certain degree, when we overstep those boundaries, and, and sign arrogance is the opposite. It's like putting myself into my ivory tower. It's ensconcing myself too much. So I'm a little bit too... And we sometimes do this in our houses. We, I don't know. Who can go with that guest this week, right? You know, we want our privacy. We want our cosy families. I bet there's somebody needy, right? How much do we use our membranes to shut ourselves in? How much do we open ourselves out, right? And what happens when those membranes become decayed? Yes? Yeah, just when you speak evil of someone, you're like daring them open, you're making them very vulnerable, and now you have to be put away, and like you're the one outside the circle. Right? So I think all of this is happening. I think this is what this story with the leprosy, with the decay, and now we see that the whole thing is, he assumed that he had a certain prestige, a certain standing. What, me? I'm going to do all these things? You're meant to be come to me and treat me as a dignitary, right? And now he's being taught this and suddenly he's transformed, right? He's transformed because he actually stood outside himself and looked himself a he little listened. bit from the outside. He listened. Right. He listened. And again, the solution comes from the little people in this story, right? From the uh, servants, from the courtiers. Yes. Did he listen because he had the will to listen or did he listen because he had no choice? Right. Yes. He wanted to be cured. Okay, well, you're right. But how many times have we all experienced something we didn't necessarily want to do? We didn't necessarily choose to do, but we do undergo an experience and it is enlightening to us, right? You know, I've gone to, I don't know, things that I didn't want to do because my wife said, hey, we're going, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't have chosen to go. I may have even put up a fight. And then when I actually do it, I'm like, wow, that was, you know, thank you for, thank you for, for, for taking me there because that was really great. And I grew out of the experience. So the fact that he didn't choose to doesn't necessarily mean it didn't affect him. Um, so I would, I would definitely, definitely say that. So what I want to... Um, okay, so what I want to... Um, so so, so he, he comes back, and now look at the classic way that this is spoken about. Because, of course, it, it, let's look at verse... Um, again, notice, of course, verse 14, that his flesh becomes like a little boy's, a nar katan. Okay, so the ish has become a nar katan. 
And, uh, of course, by Yered, he descends, he went down, right? And now, verse 15, he returns, just like his hand has returned, he returns to the man of God, him and his whole entourage, and now look at the, the language. He stood before him. He sees himself, so to speak, subservient before the king. And he says, now I know there is no God in, Israel, in, the, in, in the whole land, except in Israel, but please now take my gift. I want to pay you. What does the man of God say? I won't. Why won't he? Why won't he? It just quotes an enemy, and secondly, it's... That's not what he says. What does he say? That might all be right. That's not what he says. Verse 16. As God lives... Oh, what's the the English? Okay, so I just want to say, here's a great example. Can I just use this as an example of... uh, of a, 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 a great example of a translator who's trying to be useful, who's totally unuseful, <laughs> right? Um, verse 10, but he replied, as the Lord is who I serve. But look at the Hebrew. Chai Hashem is the Lord is asher amadeti lefanav. You stand before me, but I stand before God. I don't not only serve him, I am subserving to I am standing before God. In other words, here's the hierarchy, right? You stand before me, but if you're paying me, then that means... I have the power, right? But I don't have the power. It's not my power. It's God's power. I stand before God. And if you really say you believe in that God, and I believe in that God, then I'm not taking any money because it's not my power. But it also gift is bracha here. That's not Yes, problem. that is an interesting thing. Because this gift to me feels material, but then the Hebrew is bracha. Yes, the Hebrew is bracha. Truth, Yaakov says the same thing to Esau, but that could be playing around with the brachot. Uh, yes, take a, I, I'm not sure what to make of that. Whichever way, he says, as God lives before whom I stand, says Elisha, right? I cannot take. And he begged him, he refuses, point blank. You can't get through to this man. And it's at this point, right, before he says, I believe this is the greatest God, but now he says even more than that, right? He says, uh, that he, like, he's really taken, right? And he says, can you give me some earth? I want to take it with me. By the way, why does he want earth? Mm-hmm. Maybe to build an altar, right? We have the notion of Mizbeah Hadamah, you build an altar and fill it with earth. They believed a lot of times in a pagan mindset of a geographical God. So they believed that God was connected to the soil. By the way, even now there are some people who bring back water, water from the Jordan, you know, air from the land of Israel. I know it's a bit of a scam, but, you know, here they're taking back earth, right? They even, by the way, is a tradition. We bury people. If you've been part of a Chabukadisha, there is a tradition, right? Of nowadays we can because we can get back and forth from Israel. And we, my my grandfather told me a, a story that when he visited Palestine in 1936, that was the only thing that his father asked him to bring back. Mm. Some earth from Eretz Israel was very rare, and you would leave a little bag of earth from Eretz Israel to be buried in with in your in your in your in your uh, coffin, uh, and uh, that was what he wanted. He said, uh, of course, in later times with access to Israel, Hebrews Kaddishas have a lot of this earth. Right, and they uh, use it frequently. And uh, I think my parents actually have the bag because he didn't need to use it because it's used by everybody. But yeah. You didn't mention anything about going into the water seven times. Is that like a nixon or is the seven like shlemut completeness? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what to exactly make of the seven times. Seven is frequently, as you said, some sense of uh, wholeness. Wholeness. I'm not sure what to make of the seven. Maybe it's a a whole. Well, there definitely is the mikvah. Thing. I, I, you're asking a really good question and it's got a much longer answer as part of which I haven't fully uh, I'll tell you something very interesting I have a big question about this because actually 
uh, Elisha tells him lirchotz, to wash, which is the biblical word for mikvah. And it actually uses the word taval, right? He says vayitbo. Now, in the Bible, litbo means to dip in, not to immerse. Lirchatz means immersion, and taval means to dip. And it, I find it interesting that he told him, go and immerse yourself in the, in the Yardin. But he only, I wonder whether he, like, sort of, like, even Naaman was a little, he put his, he put his feet in. <laughs> he didn't, like, uh, you know, go, do, go the full whack. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not sure about this because I discussed this with some Bible scholar, and he told me to go and check, check in the Akkadian and see whether maybe Taval is an Akkadian word and Rachatz is a Hebrew word, and therefore, you know, it's actually talking about the the, the uh, Aramean in his language and the Jew in his language, I still haven't checked that up. So I still have to check that up. So please excuse me if I haven't done all the homework. But we use Litzbol. We also do, we also do in the mikvah, we call Litzbol. That's become our word, but in the Bible it's not. When the Bible talks about mikvah, it actually talks about rachatz and not tavah. Um, tavah is like dipping. Yes. So I, I'm not sure the relation. But yes, there definitely seems to be a mikvah sort of thing. Oh, really? Well, that's in mystical circles, seven is uh, this nature and eight is above nature. One, you do seven plus one only outside of the land of Israel, but in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to, uh, I'm, I'm watching our time, so I have to be, be a little cautious here. Um, so let's just, okay, so we understand, and, and it's after this when he says, I, I won't take anything, he says, Oh, give me this land, give me this, uh, because I will not even offer to any other god. Before he saw God as the head of the pantheon, but now he's saying all the other gods are like nothing, right? There is only one god, right? It was before God's the truest god. He's the, the, the ultimate god, but all the others exist. Now I won't offer to anything else. I realize nothing has power. What really impressed him? The fact that he wouldn't take the money, right. okay? That he wouldn't take the money. And he explained to him this excuse that he's got to bow down and... And, and fine, and he leaves and he says to him, um, the, the last words he says to him is, Lech shalom, right? Off you go, shalom, and off he goes. Okay, now we see the postscript to the story, which, uh, okay, Gechazi. Tell me about Gechazi. What happens with Gechazi? What does it mean my boss is not going to take any money? What does it mean my boss is not going to take any money, right? Gechazi say. By the way, he, 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 you, sense, you sense the racial disdain here, right? In the Hebrew, right? He's not, by the way, look at the way Gehazi is introduced. Gehazi, Nar Elisha. There's, you've got the hierarchy. Gehazi is the Nar Elisha. He's answerable to Elisha, right? And he says, Elisha, Ish Elohim. So he's the Nar of Elisha, who's the man of God, right? It's again, a triple hierarchy, right? But does that, in a sense, uh, elevate Gehazi? I might be the Na'ar, but look who I'm the Na'ar of. Ah, okay. So maybe that's what he's hearing. That's what he's hearing, right. And he says, uh, You know, you, you couldn't have at least uh, taken, up, taken his baggage allowance away from him, given him an empty suitcase so you could bring some stuff back. Right? You didn't lighten his load at all. Right? And he's an Aramiazer, this Aramean. Right? You know, we don't need to light those people. Right? They're the enemy. Right? And now look what he says. He strikes me actually very Laban like in this. You think about Laban when he encounters Yaakov. He's got, and and he's got Eliezer also. Right. 
I want money out of this. And now Lord, he says, as God lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Right? Now, by the way, notice... Now's my chance. Now's my chance. But notice the difference, right? With Gechazi, as God lives, I will run after him and get... By the way, it says, literally says, I will get nothing from him. Right? They try to say here is something, because that's what he means. But actually says, more. I'll get nothing from him. I'll say something about that. But we've already had as God lives. What did, what did Elisha say? As God lives, who I serve, I will not accept anything. In other words, he's using exactly Elisha's language yeah. in reverse, yeah. right? Upside down. Elisha says, as God lives, I won't take. And he says, as God lives, I'll take. Now, by the way, he feels proud about it, right? He, he's also got a conscience. We've all got a conscience, even when we do wrong things. So he says, I'll take. But really, it's Muma. It's nothing, right? It's nothing, right? He won't even notice it, right? He won't even notice it. And notice, by the way, when he comes to ask him, he says, I've got two prophets. Can you give them two lots of clothes and? Talent of silver. And one talent of silver, right? Oh, now, if it's two, two prophets. No, no, one second. He says, he says, Gechazi, when Amman says, what, what is it? And he says, two youths, verse 22. Two youths, disciples of the prophets who just come from the hill country of Ephraim. Give them one talent of silver and two changes of clothing. I thought that was two that was each. But then he wraps the two talents. Well, no, I think that's both of them. So two youths, give them one talent of silver and two changes of clothing. What does Naaman say? Take two. Oh, if you've got two, two talents of clothing. They can each get a talent of silver. So now, by the way, of course, what he really wanted to say was, give me two. Right? But he was too embarrassed to ask, right? He didn't want to push it. Right? So he asked for he asked for one, one set. right? Two. One set. Now, by the way, even then, I, I'll, I'll pay. I don't know how, but when 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 uh, Gechazi sees him coming, um, what does he see? He says, "Sorry, sorry, when sorry when Naaman sees Gechazi coming after him, right? Or, or let's ask. Let's just look at verse twenty-one. It says, I'll read the Hebrew. Now the word of radaf." What does that usually mean? To chase, pursue. Maybe you remember from Shiratayam. Erdof, Asig, Achalek, Shalal. I'll chase, I'll divide the spoils. But Naaman doesn't see it that way because Naaman's, as you said, the starry eyed Baltishuva. Everything's good about the Jews at this moment, right? He's just going to get his uh, slap around the face. But anyway, and he says, Not Rodef Acharav. He just sees him running after him. And notice it says here, right? He like jumps off the chariot. What can I do? And he says to him, Hashalom. He's got no clue that he is the prey. He is the quarry, right? And this guy who is Rodef, right? And trying to despoil him, so to speak. He thinks, oh, I'm just, how can I help? How can I help? And uh, you've got this mismatch, right? And I think it's very deliberate. Okay. One is saying, how can I help? The other is saying, how can I help myself? Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> this is, again, the fascinating thing because, of course, Gechazi comes home. Right? By the way, he, notice also he's got two men with him. And uh, Gechazi comes home and he hides them all. And then, again, very interestingly, you'll see another lovely mistranslation in verse 25. He entered and stood before his master. Now, look at the Hebrew. By Yehuba. You with me with the Hebrew? Verse 25? Yehuba. Now, if it was before his master, what would it say? 
Lifnei. But what does it say? El. Why doesn't it say Lifnei? Because he doesn't see himself subservient. So it doesn't say Lifnei. Right? Mm. He's already decided he's off on his own and running his own little geschäft on the side. Right? <laughs> he's not. So it doesn't say Lifnei. He's not Lifnei. Right? So it says by El Adonav because he's now confronting, so to speak. Right? Right? And he's El Adonav, right? And uh, now Alicia says to him, right, where do you go? And he says, nowhere. <laughs> and he says, did my, was my spirit there when you got down from it? A man got to your chance to meet you. Is now the time to, to, to buy clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female slaves? I don't understand. He took some clothing and some money. What's he talking about? You know, groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female slaves. What's he saying there? That might be what he can use the money for. And one thing leads to another. In other words, it, it doesn't stop here. Mm. Right? It doesn't stop here. When you start taking money, this becomes addictive. Because I'm doing miracles all the time. People are coming to me all the time. If you're basically going to see this as some sort of uh, you know, revenue builder, right? You know, suddenly you're going to be using all of this. And it's gonna, you know, you're going to basically look at this as a way of, of making yourself wealthy. Uh, you know, it's not going to stop just with these two pieces of gold or silver or whatever gold or he took in the clothing. Vineyards, this, by the way, notice also how he's actually taken two men with him. I don't know who he convinced them to go, but he's infecting the, the rest of the Hebra, right? They're becoming his accomplices, etc., etc. Yes? Where's your brother? Right. Where did you go? Where did you go? You can fess up if you like. I know. We already knew where he went, obviously, but he used it as a rhetorical question to make him kind of maybe look at his own behavior. I think that's true. But the Hebrew, excuse me, the Hebrew is Mayayin. Isn't that where are you from, not where did you go? Yes, where are you from? Where have you come from, Gay Hazi? So that does sound like a kind of existential Ayeka kind of question. Right. Yes. Yeah, just a slightly differently. He says, Vayomer Elav, he says to him, Me'ain Gechazi. Like, from nothing, uh-huh. you have Gechazi. You are from nothing. Almost like, not asking him, where did you go? I know where you went. It's almost like Ayeka in, in the Garden of Eden. God knows where they are. Right. What like, right? By what right? I know where you went. You're from nothing now, Gechazi. Uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting read. Yeah. Interesting read. Yes. I interpreted the sort of listing of the money and clothing and oxen and sheep and slaves and whatever to be more a reference to like an attempt to change his lot in life because then later the punishment in essence is not just for him but also for his descendants forever. So it's like, at least the way that I understand it, it's it's not just that he was trying to take this money here and to the point that you were making right one thing leads to another, but more than that, that he's trying to change his station, and in essence, the station of his family for generations, and wow. that's why the punishment wow. is not just for him, but also Fasc- for them. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, yes? Well, I took it a slightly different way of thinking that this is this is how this money was um, procu- procured by Naaman in the first place. Oh. Was by you know kind of capturing land and vineyards and and that you know 
Fascinating options. Fascinating options. Let's let's try and bring this bring this together, and then we'll just take this uh, one or two stages forward. So let's summarise this story. Okay, we've got this. So we've set up the story with this very hierarchical sort of paradigm, and the notion that who stands before who, right? And even setting up the idea that in Israel the king is not the king doesn't control the prophet, or in other words, the king doesn't control religion, right? Religion is there as the critique of ourselves, right? In the pagan mindset, you expect religion to be there for you, right? And uh, what we're really saying is religion demands something of you, right? And it's not for you to be taking the, the, the benefits from this. And this is indeed what is expressed by Elisha's refusal to take any money. Um, and this is, and, and Gekhazi, who is, uh, you know, seems to be the personal assistant of the prophet, um, decides to take a profit, <laughs> decides to, uh, to make this profitable, to monetize this business of, uh, of healing people and doing miracles, and says, wait, actually, I want religion to be serving me, right? And uh, this is exactly where this, uh, you know, of course, arrogance is putting yourself in the center, right? Putting everything revolves around you. And uh, this, uh, this sense of uh, corruption of personality led, uh, clearly maybe Naaman had, God saw Naaman had a potential, right? Not every arrogant person is given a, a lesson, a spiritual lesson like Naaman. Um, clearly God saw he had some sort of potential, wanted to teach him a lesson that he was capable of receiving. But Gehazi, ironically, in this story, is so uh, intoxicated by the, and sees all the time the power of the prophet, right, that he decides that he will use it to put some money in his own pocket. Yes? Maybe in addition to that, you're putting the emphasis on the religion. Maybe it's also say something about leadership, that leadership and having an influence on people, you know, and, and the role you play in that leadership relationship doesn't always have to include, you know, a profit for yourself if you want to be a real leader. And uh, Gazi, who has some sense of that he wants to be in this activity also, He's misinterpreting it and looking for some reward right. based on based wow. on his attachment to Alicia. Right. What's the yeah. profit for the profit? Right. Um, I think it's interesting when you say that paganism is what's in it for me, basically, because the fastest growing religion in the U.S. today is paganism. That's and, and yes, it's not, it's not very big, but it's growing at a very fast rate, especially amongst the especially yeah, yeah. especially amongst the young. Uh, not, not, in, not in numbers, absolute numbers, yes, but in percentages, it's paganism. So if you look at society today in America, it's very individualistic, and you know what's in it for me. And the fact that paganism wow. is rising is really interesting. Fascinating. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, secularism. Um, I, I have always looked at this story and uh, thought about this fascinating situation. You know, we deal a lot in uh, Israel with institutions of, re of religion, and sometimes with corruption within the religious environment, right? And the notion, um, you know, maybe it's, you're familiar with the teaching that the, the rabbis say that you shouldn't even take money for learning Torah, for teaching Torah. Um, and that, uh, you know, I'm guilty of that. Uh, and, uh, take money so that you don't have to have another documentation. Right, that's true. Um, and yet I, you know, I, 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 I can understand it because sometimes uh, you are in a situation whereby uh, you know, what happens when you choose to teach according to who pays you the big money or whatever it is, if you are in a higher calling, so to speak, you hope that you will, your decisions will be based on um, the, the meaning and the truth of what you're doing and not necessarily, uh, you know, on where the money, where the revenue is. 
And uh, I think what, one of the things that I see in this chapter is a great temptation from institutions of religion, right, to be involved in, um, to, to actually fall into this trap, right, to monetize the religion, to find a way that, you know, you're offering something that people desperately need for areas of meaning of their life. And sometimes you can actually uh, make money out of it. I'm not saying people shouldn't be paid for their time and, and what have you. Uh, and I, I am, of course, by the way, the counterbalance is otherwise there won't be any teachers, so we have to pay teachers, right? Um, but that's changed. I mean, you know, it used to be, you know, this is a living would support Issachar, but that's not anymore, is it? Right, well, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, but by the way, and where I see that, the rabbis saw this too in this story. Uh, a lot of people ask me, what are these two lines from chapter six that I included there? And maybe some of you thought yeah. that it was actually a mistake, yeah. right? But there's a very fascinating midrash. If you look at the beginning of chapter six, you see in the next story that the B'nai Anavi and the disciples of the prophet say to Elisha, see the place where we live under your direction is too cramped for us. Let's go to the Jordan, and we're going to log and build quarters. So in other words, the Bet Midrash, like Pardes, we need to build a new building, right? And they're saying our Bet Midrash is too small. And let's go to the Jordan, at first, it's interesting. It seems like they're leaving Samaria, the big city, and going out to the countryside, which is interesting. But they certainly say, we need um, you know, new digs. And uh, then even one says, can you come along? And he says, yes, I'll come. Now, you see this, like, first of all, intimacy between the, the Rebbe and the stu students. But the rabbi said, wait one second. Why suddenly now, after this story, is suddenly the yeshiva expanding? What's going on? Right? <laughs> And just look over to source number three over there, the Radak, right? Source number three. The rabbi said, after Gehazi was banished by Elisha, there was a surge in the number of students. Because Gehazi was bad to them, and many feared to associate with Elisha due to the evil of Gehazi, who had pushed them away, right? And some of the commentators imagine Gehazi as sort of like the gatekeeper of the Bet Midrash, deciding who was admitted and who wasn't, right? Who, you know... And, uh, well, it's interesting because we all know the story, probably, of Hillel, right? Mm -hmm. That Hillel did, wasn't given access to the Beit Midrash till he paid his, his money, right? And the rabbis who were, where these Midrashim were created were used to having a sort of gatekeeper at the dates of the Beit Midrash deciding who was at, got access either because of his um, personal sort of pedigree or whether he could actually afford the fee for the Bet Midrash, and you had an argument between the Shammai's who had the leastest institution and the Hillel's who had far more democratic and open-door institutions, and this repeated itself in later generations with Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi al ben Azariah, if you know the Sugya in, 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 in Rosh Hashanah, this fourth parak, where again there's a question about whether there should be a closed-door Bet Midrash or an open-door Bet Midrash, right? Paradise, we have an open-door Bet Midrash. Um, and, um, but they see Elisha as not only wielding power in the courts of religion and also here um you know taking money saying say, and wait i don't understand how did alicia choose this guy in the first place to be so bad i actually don't think he started off that bad <laughs> and maybe it is that the guy starts off really enamored with the rebbe with the with the with the great master but at a certain point realizes hangs around enough with wealthy people hangs around enough with all these things and realizes what a power it is, and people can't say, well, he wouldn't even take money from me, and you start thinking, well, maybe he should, right? Yeah. And maybe he's also even more in love with his rabbi, and thinks he's so great, and thinks, wait, why are you selling yourself short? And slowly, and what I see sometimes is, even within the best well-meaning, I, I don't know if Gehazi was bad, I'm sure when he didn't give people admission to the Bet Midrash, he said, well, you're not really worthy to hear, you know, 
You haven't really done enough preparatory work. You haven't learned enough tractates of the Talmud to really understand what Elisha's teaching you. you. You don't get access, right? You know, and then there's always the question, how much of it is like done sincerely and well-meaning, right? How much? And here there's no doubt that Elisha smells the corruption and says, by what you're doing, you are undermining my work. You're undermining the Kiddush Hashem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and he takes power corrupt, right? And that there's a certain power corrupt. Or I'd like to say, instead of just saying that, I would like to say that in religious institutions, you always have to be on your guard, right? You always have to be on your guard to try and keep to keep your hands clean, right? To try and make sure that you stay on mission and you make decisions in a, um, in a, in a principled manner. Right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I fully appreciate this is much easier than said and done, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I remember once when I was working in a, not in Pardes, and I remember that we were upset because year after year, we found a few students who weren't always so into the ethos of the institution, and later we found that they were actually children of very big donors of the institution. And each year, a few children of donors got in, and we felt that they were affecting the atmosphere. And when we challenged the fundraiser and the head of the institution, he said, listen, you've got your agenda, and I've got my agenda, right? And my agenda is keeping this place afloat, and if it means allowing three or four places for people who actually also donate a lot of money to the institution, then... Do you want a salary? Do you want us to? Do you want to? Do you want to have? It ain't kamach ain't Torah, right? So I'm fully aware, right? I mean, you, what I'm saying is, even decisions about money can be highly principled, even though they are about money. And I don't think. But all I'm saying is, these are these are really tough questions. But like, I think this is a chapter about, you know, as I said, ego, humility, and and the distortion. How sometimes religion can become distorted. And I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm saying we just have to be on our guard. Right, we have to be on our guard to make sure that we that we are making decisions for, for the right reasons. Um, I don't, I, we've still got a couple of minutes, so I don't know if anybody wants to comment. Uh, I've got one one further thing that I'd like to. Yeah. Uh, looking at this, it makes me think of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's secretary, uh, the man who was the gatekeeper, because nobody asked the Rebbe directly, "Can I have an appointment?" They had to go through this chain of command. Right. And the amount of power that this individual had because throngs sure. of Jews on a daily basis wanted to come and see the Rebbe. And to my knowledge, or if anybody knows any other gossip, uh, he never abused his power. You know, he had a hard job, but he, he kept it straight. And imagine right. what he could have, how he could have lined his pockets with a few extra shekels to get people right. in. Or, or uh, created political power by yeah. siding with this faction mm-hmm. rather than that faction. Right, right. right? Um, so, yeah, does anyone else want to... Right, I want to just finish off with a couple... I put a few bunch of sources here. We're not going to obviously read all of them. Um, sources four, five, six, seven, uh, uh, eight. But I want to just read a few passages from Rav Cook with you um, about... Because, of course, the question is, we can come down on ego and come up for humility, but we should all be aware that um, this is also complicated. Um in the source number six, which I'm not going to read, uh, is the introduction to Chobot HaVavot, a very important philosophical work of uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Bakke Ibn Bakuda, who's from Spain. And he actually writes, why am I writing this book? Do I think I've got it all worked out? <laughs> you know, right. maybe I shouldn't be writing this book. And I'm writing about perfection. I think, I, am I a perfect human being? And he says, well, I asked myself, would this world be better with this book written or not written? And I came to the conclusion it's probably better to write it. Yeah? But don't think I've got it all worked out. 
And, you know, this is a very, very difficult dilemma. What point you, you stand up there and, and do something? So somebody wants, that Rav Cook, uh, who's <coughs> so insightful, um, has a, a section in one of his books called Midot Araya, where he examines different, um, different notions. And we're going to look at source number five, seven, and eight, where you can see he's dressing in one of them pride, another one um, honor and humility. So could somebody like to read us source number five? Thank you. Um, pride. He who would penetrate the profound hidden natures of the soul must carefully assess the feeling of pride, which is that illegitimate feeling which can cause him to behave against his own better judgment as well as that of his maker, and which is the refined feeling which enlarges the human spirit and reminds man of his full glorious spiritual essence. Many times the human heart is filled with strength, vigor, power, which at first glance might seem a similar trait to that of pride or haughtiness, but once clarified, it is the strength of the light of God that shines from the person's soul, a person who perceives the glory of God. The absence of this pride will not only fail to improve the person, but will in fact deplete all the person's spiritual energy. Okay, so he's talking here about pride. And he's talking about, you know, because if I'm saying that you get leprosy because of pride or arrogance, so he's saying there's a good type of pride and there's a bad type of pride. Okay, so what's the good pride? Or what's the bad pride? Bad pride is? Right. There, there can be one which can uh, make you work against your better judgment, right? The good one, right, is he says it, it enlarges the human spirit, reminds man of his full glorious, right? It comes from the light of God. Right. He says sometimes, right, the human heart is filled with some sort of Oz power. At first glance, it might seem similar to somebody of pride or haughtiness. In other words, I might be a leader of a corporation, an institution, and I might really feel, you know, like I need to lead, you know, lead. But it might be that I'm giving a tremendous amount of propulsion and energy to that corporation. Now, does that mean I'm full of myself? Right? Um, so he says, it might well be that once it's clarified, it's the strength of the light of God, right? The absence of pride will not fail to improve the person. It'll deplete all the person's spiritual energy, right? Sometimes leadership, let's not confuse maybe leadership, right? With pride, you know, sometimes you have to stand in front of your community. You have to stand as a rabbi, um, as a teacher. You have to, you know, sometimes I'm also nervous about preaching, right? I don't like preaching, like if I've got it all worked out, what I don't, you know, I don't, you know, think about all the mistakes I've made with my kids or, you know, moments of mistakes in my marriage. I, I can go and offer advice, right? So that means I'm like a schmuck. I can do nothing. How, how do you, how do you do that, right? It's very, very difficult. And he says what. You've got, to, you've got to really ask yourself those questions about is this, if I'm taking up a leadership role, or if I'm putting myself up there, is that um, going to be causing negative, more toxic things, right? Or maybe the world will be worse off if, if I'm not doing these things. It will deplete my spiritual energy. Maybe I really feel passionate about this and I can't lead. So I think it's, it's important. Let's, let's read another couple of, uh, um, another couple of things. Who will read us number seven? Thank you. Thank you. Um, to the, so this is honor. 
To the extent of the lack of inner perfection, nature will strive to exterior perfection. You know, I'm going to ask you to read that line again, please. We'll take it in. To the extent <laughs> of the lack of inner perfection, nature will strive for external perfection. Exterior. 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 Okay. What did I say? External. So, but never mind. Don't worry. It's Keep going. Thing. Keep going. Okay. Only from a state of baseness of spirit will awaken the drive for self-glorification before others whether in what the spirit really has or in what it doesn't have. Therefore, man must increase the impression of the inner perfection, and then his words, when speaking of himself before others, will always be properly balanced. Okay, what's, what's he saying here? So the less perfect you are inside, the more you'll seek honor. Right, sometimes because I feel a little inadequate inside, I might try and puff myself up on the outside. Mm -hmm. The extent we lack inner perfection, we'll strive for exterior perfection. So mm -hmm. it's not so bad if I want to wear fancy clothing, right? But if I want to, you know, sort of like be lording it over others and be very pompous and, you know, maybe even be arrogant and mean to other people and be a sort of one of those, I don't know, bosses who's always, uh, you know, angry with everybody in the, you know, around, right? Because actually you're a bit of an empty, empty person yourself. You're striving for this exterior perfection. And he says, only from a state of base of the spirit will awaken the drive for self-glorification before others. People who are really inner full don't need that self-glorification. Right? They don't need that self-glorification. They're not obsessed with their image and whatever it is. Right? So if you really want to be respected, right, work on the work work on your inner self, right? When you've got more to give, right? then you won't feel a need for everybody's glory. You'll feel a need to give, <laughs> to share the good. So this is a great example of where honor can be a sign of an inner, inner emptiness, right? But it isn't always, right? In fact, actually, sometimes we really gain the impression of somebody who is worthy of honor, right? Because they're so impressive, but they never ask for it, right? You know, unfortunately, sometimes we do see this in our political realm, I'm not directing to any particular country or whatever it might be, right? But people who are a little empty inside or whatever it might be, and they are, you know, a bit of obsessed with image and what have you, um, and we do wonder, and, and it seems off kilter, right? So I'll finish with this, with this last thing about humility and to give us something to think about. People mentioned before the sort of uh, Ayeka, so I'll mention the other one. Hineni is the language that should say of is the language of humility and enthusiasm. Rizut means a, sort of a sense of alacrity, a sense of, um, you know, willingness to act. A person who is humble is enthusiastic. In other words, a person who is humble understands there's a mission to do. There's a mission to do. I'm here to work. And he says, but I think it's important because, you know, when we're talking about humility, the question is, Okay, let's, let me try and put this on the table a bit more. We saw that I mentioned ego and humility, so I want to say, sometimes ego, we need a healthy ego, but there are times when ego turns into arrogance and it's very unhealthy. Likewise, there's a time when humility can be very healthy, but there are times when humility means debasing myself, means a lack of self-worth, a self-negation, and I'm not worthy, and, and, and maybe can lead oneself into a state where... I actually don't fulfill my potential because I'm always devaluing myself, right? 
don't mind me, I'm not going to take up that job, right? And sometimes we meet people like this, we've got friends or relatives who we feel are really underachieving because they don't value themselves enough. You say, you're so talented, why aren't you doing more with yourself, right? You know, chaval, it's a shame, right? So I, I say this, this, we can talk about ego and humility, but I, I'm trying to bring out through these difficulties is this is very difficult to calibrate, right? And there's a very interesting, we spoke before about membranes, that the question of your outer self versus your inner self. It's a very interesting dynamic here. So Rav Cook is actually saying here, listen to this, he says, whenever humility brings about melancholy, right, his itzavon, sadness, right, it is invalid. <laughs> True humility shouldn't lead you to a state of depression. If you're getting depressed, then it probably isn't humility. It's probably depression. It's probably something wrong with it, right? Mm -hmm. You're not being humble, right, which leads you to depression. If you're already depressed, then that's a sort of, that's not humility. That's what we call low esteem, mm -hmm. all right? But anyway, he says, the language of humility is one of hineni, right? I'm up for the task. It's somebody who's willing to actually take it on, right? Not because he's full of himself, because he understands I've got God-given talents. Right? So when it is worthy, it engenders joy, courage, and inner glory. So a truly humble person should be imbued with courage. And if you see somebody depressed, it's not that I'm humble. No, there's something, something uh, out, of, out, of, out of balance there. At times, and he says once again, at times we should not be afraid of the feeling of greatness, which elevates man to do great things. And all humility is based on such a holy feeling of greatness. And that's a real paradox, right? In other words, someone's got to realize I've got to stand up there. Not because I'm full of myself, but because, right, that I've got that greatness, right, because it elevates us to do great things. And all humility is based on that feeling of greatness. That's a lovely paradox, right? Right, Dafka, because I'm humble, I want to do great things, right? Because I don't really, it's all about me. It's actually about the mission, or it's about what we have to do. So, it's a lot to think about. Um, we've learned an amazing story about Naaman. Thank you for downloading this episode of Pardes Live in Miniseries featuring Rabbi Alex Israel. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. If you would like to join us for the 2020 Summer Pardes Learning Seminar, please contact seminar at pardes.org.il.